Hello and welcome to another episode of the EMG Health podcast. Today we are joined by an exciting guest, Julian de Salabry. How are you doing today, Julian? Good afternoon. I'm very well, thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure to have joined you on this podcast. Thank you. Julian has uh, 15 years experience in healthcare, having held roles at Eli Lilly, Boston Scientific, Baxter, GSK, Merck & Co., but more recently has turned his focus to inspiring change and development within the industry, co-authoring a book called You Disrupted, which aims to engage the public with important debate on collective intelligence. So before we delve into the world of digital health, understand that you began your career in the Royal Navy, serving in the first Gulf War and the Bosnian War. Now, looking back, I wonder if you can tell us how did your time in the Royal Navy impact on your ability to handle the challenges of business? That's a good question. It's not one you get very often. Um, largely, I think people don't fully understand what being in the armed forces uh, entails or means. Um, so I completed my electrical electronic engineering degree in the UK and by the end of it decided that then couldn't really stand the sight of another circuit board. So uh, I actually began a career in the city, so not too far away from here, um, and decided that it was probably a little too staid for me at that stage of my life. So I applied to join the Royal Navy in its officer corps and um, was lucky enough to, to get selected and, and join on a cold January morning. Uh, all the way down in Devon and Dartmouth and uh, pursued a seven-year career. Just a year short of the eight years I'd actually signed up for. Uh, but we can come back if that's of any interest to why I left slightly before. But um, it was a fun career, uh, one that enabled me to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do rather than necessarily just doing the normal um, career trajectory of a naval officer. Um, so that did see me, yes, in, in, in the Gulf War. I mean, I actually started uh, by graduating top candidate of Dartmouth, uh, the officer training uh, college, uh, which... Uh, meant I got shortlisted to be sent. Uh, well, actually, I got shortlisted on a list that allowed captains to choose um, who they wanted to join their ships. And I was selected by a captain who was sailing off to the Gulf War in, in, back in, in 1991. Mm. Uh, and that was uh, an interesting experience in my life. I think family was more worried about me than I was worried about myself. And, um, and so that was followed by 93 by, by the Bosnian conference as well. Um, you learn a great deal in, in the armed forces, and I think some, often enough there is some misunderstanding that, um, and I think probably driven by too many war movies, uh, where the armed forces is about shouting at people to get things done. Um, the Royal Navy is a very different kettle of fish. You know, we're now dealing with billion-dollar warships that have uh, you know, steaming with technology, uh, you know, shooting rockets and missiles that uh, you know, have hundreds of miles of range, millions of uh, different waypoints, so you can actually shoot a missile at the target. The target has no idea where it's come from, simply because you've gone around the houses to get to them. So you can imagine, as a result, you need um, matlows, sailors, uh, and other NCOs who are quite qualified to be able to sort of manage these, these pieces of the kit. And that's not too different to, therefore, you know, everyday civvy life, as, as it's referred to in the armed forces. So, you know, some of the learnings that I still use to this day are that there are very few business issues that you would describe as a matter of life and death. And therefore, if something goes wrong, just don't panic. Take your time and you'll find a way out of it. I've too often found some of my colleagues within corporations get into a right panic simply because something's not gone according to plan. And, you know, you just look, look at the big picture, really, and, and help them navigate through it. And, and that's something you have to 
you know, get comfortable with. But when you get used to it, that's that's what you do. The other, of course, is thinking on, thinking on your own two feet. You know, the armed forces are very good at planning, but nothing always goes to plan. I think the, the old saying is that your best plan never survives contact with the enemy. Um, so you need to be able to improvise. And, and, and as a naval officer, you have a team of people who are reliant on you too be able to think quickly and uh, and improvise and then come up with a solution um, which is incredibly useful when you're driving a startup uh, building a startup as I have been for the last few years you know my team are immensely capable but they are looking to me to set direction to uh, to overcome issues etc which brings me to the third one really which is I was inferring there which is the importance of the team you know you are really only as good as your team you're only as good as how the team is going to support you to to reach the objective uh, and that's from encouraging them, is coaching them, uh, is selecting the right talent to get there as well. And all these things are massively important. And the last one, which is one I regularly repeat to my team, which is what we call the five Ps. The prior planning prevents poor performance, or there's a slightly ruder version in the armed forces. Yes, um, I know it was the six Ps too. <laughs> that's right, there's that one too. Um, we, I mean, I, I, I stand by that. And, and they, when things go wrong, um, we always invest time um, doing what is commonly known as a plan do review, which is, you know, what was the plan? Was it executed correctly? Uh, and how do we affect a better plan next time around? Uh, and, and of course, that's very important when you're working with important big clients like ours, such as, you know, big pharmaceutical companies or big insurers. You know, the, these guys are looking for an outcome that they agreed to. And we need to make sure that we um, are able to deliver what we promised. Fascinating. Thank you. We share a lot of those values here at EMG. So we also run a, an after action review, we call it. I think that's stolen from the Navy SEALs. We still have a lot of yeah. Reviewing our reviewing every execution that we have. I was particularly interested in what leadership lessons do you feel that you took out of the Navy as well? I was lucky enough to attend uh, a course with Sir Trevor Saw, who talked about how training is so important and developing the team you can only develop your leaders from within in, in the navy mm. you can't buy them in from elsewhere so so what did you take out from a leadership perspective um the fact that you know you're having to sell something rather than tell something um and, and you know as I, as I was trying to i guess kind of referring to the beginning of my answer to your first question, which is that you know I, you don't you don't go around barking instructions to get something. You've got to get commitment and buy-in into, mm. into what you're trying to achieve, and therefore it's got to be something that people understand. People understand their role within it, and people are committed to in terms of, in terms of making making it happen. Um, and, and so that, that for me is one of the most important uh, pieces that that I learned the hard way uh, in, in the armed forces, because it's not uncommon when you're in the navy to find that your number two uh, is probably t- as a, naval, a young naval officer is probably twice your age. Uh, they have, therefore, infinitely more experience than you, but you are still the person with whom the buck stops. Yeah. Uh, you just got to understand how you work with that person and the rest of their team to actually achieve the outcome. Um, so you're right, you can't, in those forces, hire in to fill up a gap very quickly. Uh, you have to, to build that. Um, so there is some luxury. You know, but when you're a startup and you're bootstrapping, it's pretty hard normally to be able to just sort of hire things when you need them. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, you've got to uh, find a way around the problem uh, and, and work your way around that problem with the team that you have and, and hire shrewdly as well. As much of your subsequent career has been focused in the Asia-Pacific region, mm-hmm. specifically in Singapore. What attracted you to work in, in this country? 
So my time spent in Asia Pac uh, came to an end, uh, or spent living and working in Asia Pacific came to an end uh, last year. Uh, and uh, I was somewhat wowed by the fact that actually it amounts to 18 years in Asia Pacific. Uh, I started out in Australia uh, in a role based in Sydney, but coverage of, of Asia Pacific. And then I moved to Tokyo and spent some time living and working in in, in Tokyo, uh, again, was a, a particular focus on Asia Pacific rather than just that specific country. And then about 11 years ago, I moved to, to Singapore, although initially for three. So gives you an idea of how fast things uh, go and suddenly you realize you're still there having fun. Um, I approached, I guess, Asia the easy way. In other words, I went through Australia first, uh, which kind of you know helps you bed in a little bit in an Anglo-Saxon environment before you throw yourself into the... Um, very different environment to say that Japan is. Um, but I really, uh, I guess the, the simple answer to your question is opportunity. It was that great opportunity. In fact, um, my move was triggered by my employer at the time asking me to move to Sydney to help build a particular part of the business uh, out of Sydney or based in Sydney, but uh, focus on Asia Pacific. But it, it coincided with my actually having made a decision to actually leave that organization. Uh, and so it was really the opportunity was to, to step out there and, and go there. Um, and once you're there, you really appreciate the diversity, uh, the difference in the diversity of, that you're facing once, once you're there. So less so in Sydney because it's English speaking and, and not too different from, from the Anglo-Saxon environment you get in, in the UK. Uh, but the minute you fly out to Hong Kong, you get a completely different cup of tea in terms of uh, who you're interacting with, language and different lifestyles, etc. That diversity means that you've got some really exciting sort of elements to it. Uh, the first one I'd say is that you spend your life working in Asia, um, really what I would describe as fighting for whole percentage points of market share rather than fractions of market share. You, you actually find that the decision you're making tends to translate very quickly into an activity within the market and fairly quickly translates into market share gain or loss, depending on how right you are with your decision. That's more of a struggle to achieve in a European market, which is much, much more mature. And I guess gives an indication to the fact that you're, you're facing uh, a pace for growth or pace of growth, sorry, which is quite phenomenal in, uh, in Asia Pacific. I mean, I don't know if you were watching some of the headlines recently. There was big talk about the fact that the China economy is slowing down. We're still talking 6.1% of growth of GDP. Yeah. So that's slowing for China. But there is, I think, just about every single EU country would like to be able to be growing at 6%. Yeah. Um, and so that gives you an idea of the, the, the speed at which things are growing and the level of investment that's going into to making things happen. And the other, of course, is the, the hunger to get things done. Uh, and often enough, um, particularly in the developing markets, uh, so the Indonesians, the Vietnams, as well the Philippines, is this huge hunger by um, the, the people you're working with to get it done. Um, to overcome the barriers, to, to, to hack your way to, to an outcome, to a solution, which is a huge breath of, of, of fresh air. I guess you could call it that, but you know, in Europe you can't help but feel that people are spending more time trying to build a wall around something to protect it rather than necessarily trying to get to the next level uh, of, of, of iteration or the next level of, of improvement, uh, particularly in healthcare where uh, there are fantastic opportunities to, to, to deliver better healthcare. So that's fascinating. So you have a lot of experience mentoring health technology startups. But what drew you to health technology in the first place? Was it just the size of the opportunity or was there a particular element that you were fascinated by? So 
My career in, in healthcare, it really much spans from the day I, I, I left the armed forces. Uh, when I left the armed forces, I did my MBA, and um, the outcome I did my MBA is I was hired by Eli Lilly um, to join their company on, on what uh, was then an MBA program. And I opened my eyes to, to healthcare and the fact that um, the role that a pharmaceutical company plays uh, within it. Cut long story short, over a number of years, I have worked in a number of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I have advised the, the um, healthcare space and I have banked the space. Um, my last role in industry was with Merck & Co, the, the American Merck, uh, where I was accountable for the inorganic growth of that company within Asia Pacific. So M&A, joint ventures, business model innovation. And um, there's a number of chapters in that, in that role that I had at Merck based out of Singapore. Uh, the last one being looking at how you could flex the business model of Merck within market to try and improve what are commonly known as the three A's of healthcare. So how do you improve awareness, how do you improve access, and how do you improve affordability? Um, and that's very important when you're dealing with emerging markets where the GDP per capita is far, far less than it is in, in mature markets like the European Union. And invariably, there's no universal healthcare. So that individual is paying either themselves or certainly co-paying for their healthcare. And so we looked at interesting models that saw the drug firm working alongside a uh, microfinance company, for example, to try and work out how you could spread the payments of a um, uh, chronic care, such as, say, hepatitis C. Um, but what I started to see was technology starting to emerge. At that stage, we're talking 2010, 2011, so it's early days. It's not digital health, but we're starting to see SMS playing a role, etc. Um, in parallel, I was seeing Merck starting to get much more excited about what was happening in the US. Uh, and they built the uh, GHI, the Global Healthcare uh, Innovation Fund, uh, which is a $500 million evergreen fund focused on investing in healthcare technology. Um, at the time, though, in 2011, when I was talking to the leaders of that fund, they were very focused on the US. And so when I started talking to them about what they were planning to do for Asia Pacific, they rightly said, um, it's a bit early. And they were correct. I mean, certainly the ecosystem in Asia Pac was not as mature as it was in the US. Um, but that was my prompt to to step out of uh, of um, the pharmaceutical industry itself to focus on on digital health. Because to me, I could see the trends in relation to the technology, and I could see how digital health um, really represented an unprecedented opportunity to leapfrog some of the many limitations that existed. Uh, in uh, the healthcare infrastructure uh, in Asia Pacific. Mature markets like Japan or in Singapore trying to emulate what's happening in Europe and the US in terms of delivering the same standard of care but at a lower cost, reflecting workforce shortages, etc. Uh, through to, of course, the other end of the spectrum, the new frontier markets, the Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar, that are ground zero and have an interesting choice for themselves, which is do we build an OECD-type healthcare infrastructure the same way every other OECD country has, but in 100 years' time we'll still be building and we'll still have the same disease burden to address, or do we leapfrog that and start using technology? And the parallel is the one you often hear, which is do you build a copper-wire telephone network in those countries or do you go straight to mobile? Well, they went straight to mobile technology. So why not let leapfrog uh, when it comes to, te to healthcare uh, you know, delivery? Um, and, and the addressing of, uh, of the disease burden in those markets. Uh, so, so, so it was really those combinations of, I guess, a bit of a push and pull really. It said to me, 
put your money where your mouth is, get out there and, and, and play that role uh, that you want to play within uh, the digital health space of Asia Pacific and, and help it move, move forward. Quite often that's seen as a very brave decision to take the leap from the safety of employment into, into a world that's driven by you. Mm. What drove you to make that decision? Well, some of it is the carpe diem element, which is, you know, I could see the, the space starting to grow um, and you have a choice. You either get in front of the wave or behind the wave. And I decided I would go in front of the wave. That was one of the drivers. Another driver was the fact that I decided in my mind that I didn't want to stay in a large corporation and continue operating within the limits and the confines of the strategy of that, of that particular corporation. And thirdly, of course, I'd done a little bit of homework, of course, mm. preceding that decision to understand the art of the possible and what I could do. Um, and many of the answers I was getting were certainly in favor of my making that decision. Uh, fourthly, of course, you know, family was, uh, was supportive of such a move. So, mm. so I was able to make that move. Uh, and, and step forwards and give some shape to, to my intentions. And so given your experience doing that and the experience that you've learned from working with other startups, what advice would you offer to an entrepreneur in general and particularly with a slant to a UK entrepreneur as well? We talk about a UK entrepreneur looking at Asia as a potential opportunity. Yeah, why not? Yeah, um, I mean, some of them are generic, I guess, to any entrepreneur and some yeah. of them are a little bit more specific to Asia Pacific. My advice to any entrepreneur is, uh, and it's the one that is often held as a piece of advice to, to any founder of a company as they, as they operate, uh, and that is focus on building a sustainable business model. Don't focus on desperately trying to raise funding. Uh, but that's pretty generic to, 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 any, to any entrepreneur, really. I mean, it's whatever country you're in, that, that rule stands. Um, as you look at uh, Asia-Pacific, they're fairly immature markets, and, but they are growing fast in, 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 in capability. Um, but be aware that you're dealing with a very fragmented environment. Um, you know, it's not the US that has a number of states that all seem to operate in the same language, the same regulatory environment. You're talking 27, 28 countries that all have their own regulatory environment, their own language, their own culture, etc. And these things will mean that you have to be cognizant of fact of two things. One, if you're trying to take your technology that's working really well in the UK and you're trying to turn up in Indonesia and make it work, think hard because invariably you're going to hurt yourself. Um, but equally, um, make sure that you understand that you're going to have to reshape some of that business model and aspects of your technology, uh, which requires a significant amount of investment uh, to, uh, to achieve that. The, the other thing is to, to recognize that these are fairly new markets and therefore access to talent is, is hard. So whereas Europe has two attractive points for, for any investor stroke entrepreneur, one is that uh, valuations are sensible versus say the US or China, but secondly the talent pool in, in Europe is, is very broad and very deep uh, for entrepreneurs to hire into. Um, that's not so much the case in, in certain markets in Asia-Pac, uh, especially because they're, they're coming, coming of age. Um, but you're also competing against MNCs who are trying to hire the same talent. So, you know, data scientists, for example, are, are pretty hot property. They probably are in any market. But uh, So you're sitting in Singapore, you want to hire a data scientist as a startup. Be cognizant of the fact that Google's trying to do the same, LinkedIn's trying to do the same, Merck's trying to do the same, etc. And therefore, the price tags of these particular employees are, are going pretty high. Uh, and so that, that's certainly one to be aware of. The last one, which is always a bit of an uncanny one, because people don't really think of it that way, and that is that success as a health tech uh, startup 
uh, invariably commands you to be a B2B2C model. That is why we're seeing an increasing amount of partnerships between digital health startups and big pharma, for example. Um, but the one thing that people lose from sight is the fact that a lot of big pharma MNCs sitting in Asia Pacific uh, tend to have leaders in play that rotate. So you're there on a program, you do two, three years, you move on to, to the next job, etc. And so one of the things that I always advise to be very aware of is that when you enter into a relationship with a large pharmaceutical company, it's the same for an EMNC, but I'll pick on Big Pharma for the purpose of this conversation, do try and find out how long your interface has been in that role. Because if they're in their third or fourth year, it's highly likely they're going to move on. And you're going to have to restart your relationship all over again with that organization. Uh, and so probably start prioritizing based on those who have been there lesser time and therefore are looking to actually make a difference while they're in that role. It, it's, it's a bizarre trait, but it's one that's important because you could find yourself investing a lot of time in one stakeholder who actually is not there six months down the road and you've got to start all over again. So multiple stakeholder relationships. But one of the things that you're, I understand you're focused on at Gallon Growth yep is nurturing digital health innovation mm -hmm. through industry partnerships. So what, what do you think, other than that, makes it for a successful partnership of that kind? Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really opportune question um, because what we are seeing is significant growth in partnerships between um, MNCs and, uh, and digital health startups in Asia Pacific. Um, so we track that very carefully. So one of the things that we have built within Galen Growth is is um, the leading health tech intelligence platform. Um, and, and what we do is we look at every startup down to its core building blocks. So that's, that's our starting point. That's, that's how we look at it. And then, so when we interact with a startup or a venture, depending on how mature they are, one of the questions we ask them is, you know, what are some of the partnerships you've built uh, with industry players? And, uh, and then we try and understand, of course, a bit more about what that partnership is trying to achieve, wins and losses, etc. Um, so as a result of tracking that information, we're cognizant of the fact that a number of partnerships that are being built between startups and um, uh, MNCs, corporations, uh, in Asia Pacific, for example, has grown substantially uh, over the last two, three years. And we conduct a survey every six months of the industry um, where we engage with corporation leaders, for example, to ask them their sentiment, essentially, of how they look at the last six months and how they look forward to the future six months. And their desire to build more partnerships is ever strong. Um, and they don't necessarily believe that they are set up for success for these, uh, but they still want to build them. So then you talk to the startups themselves. So whenever we are engaged in building a relationship between a corporation and a startup, we do a lot of that. As you can imagine, we're tasked by corporations to figure out who they should be partnering with. But invariably, then our tasks with the role of helping them construct that relationship which means we spend quite a bit of time shadowing and tracking that relationship to understand the pain points uh, what are the blockage points and how do you overcome those blockage points there are some obvious ones but i would suggest that uh, some of the, the the things that you've got to be very mindful of when you are a startup entrepreneur engaging with a large corporation is first of all mandate is be the one i would suggest which is does that organization truly have mandate to execute this project or is it a skunk work Skunk works are fine until they build in scale. And then you've got to be careful you're not sitting in a situation where you need to be able to start getting commitment from the rest of the organization to move forward. That will slow you right down. Now, 
as an organization like a startup that may be okay because you've got a number of clients uh, if it's your only client you're in trouble but you've got to think about the impact on the end point if it's the hcp healthcare professional sorry or the patient you're about to disadvantage that the community because the whole program has come to a slowdown so be careful of that um, the other, of course, are things like budgets, etc. So things that are fairly straightforward, which we should be aware of. But I would suggest that the most important one is how you set up this relationship between the startup and, and the corporation. And there's a term used, pilotitis, um, the disease of pilots. Um, and so some companies have overcome that by reducing the word pilot to zero and using the word prototype instead. Not so you say sold anything, you've just changed the name of it. <laughs> but that said, um, the, the greatest lesson learned that we've seen and that we are seeing um, the savvy entrepreneurs get into is when you're building a relationship with a corporation, look at a long-term relationship that has clear milestones throughout that relationship but has stage gates throughout that relationship. And so what you're asking the organization you're getting into bed with is for a long-term relationship but with some very clear go-no-go points during the course of that relationship. Now, the advantage of that is that if everybody's happy at the end of that first stage gate, and it's clearly a go to the next level, you're not having to reinvest time in renegotiating the next phase of the project. You continue with that project. Uh, and so you maintain the momentum. Uh, in fact, you continue building the momentum rather than losing the momentum. Uh, and so I would certainly encourage that type of relation to be built between the two organizations. So. Nowadays, there are a large number of non-traditional healthcare companies entering the healthcare space. What do you think are the biggest technology disruptors that are coming over the next decade? Mm, that's a f fabulous question. So to, to answer your question as succinctly as I can, because the list can be incredibly long, mm. uh, I certainly agree, and I'm a firm believer that AI, or let's be more specific, machine learning and deep learning, um, combined with quantum computing, will certainly completely transform the healthcare value chain. And I think the advent of quantum computing as has been announced in terms of IBM's progress and Google's progress means that we're starting to see a realistic combination, let's say, of machine learning, deep learning type coding and application within the context of super fast uh, computers such as quantum computing. So I think that will fundamentally change things all the way from research to treatment. Um, and, and it's a matter of time really before we start seeing some of these things bearing fruit. A second one is um, slightly out of the ordinary, but um, I would encourage people who've not seen a, I think it's a Netflix series called Altered Carbon. And the reason I make allusion to that series is because it makes some very interesting forays into uh, virtual reality and how virtual reality will play a bigger role in, uh, in our everyday lives. And it, 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 it has one particular episode that's very focused on the way it's been used to torture people. Um, now, that's not what I mean by the advent of virtual reality, but I'm sure it's quite easy for, you, for your uh, listeners to transpose that into how you use VR in a context of mental health. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see digital health therefore start to move into a zone that is no longer as a companion to a drug, for example, or as a companion to a device in the case of diabetes care, but potentially as a therapy replacement. Because now you're starting to use technology to actually try and help somebody that has a mental issue uh, to be able to try and correct or overcome that by stepping into a different type of environment than their everyday environment. And so I think VR, as it comes to age, off age, sorry, um, is going to make a, a, a big strides in the way in which we look at mental health and we treat mental health. The third one is deliberately provocative. 
um, and, and, and it's really what I would describe as an outcome, eventual outcome. And that is the fact that consumer level ownership of our health data means two things. One, that um, we will start understanding better the value of our health simply because we would see it black on white in terms of you know some of the data we're collecting any on everyday uh, devices for example but i think it's going to go beyond that um but i think we'll start to move a bit more towards the possibility of a value-based healthcare, for example um but that is going to require a massive mindset shift of the everyday individual not the early adopters i'm talking about that middle of the bell curve the the, the followers the me too's kind of thing um but hopefully start moving people towards a mindset of understanding the value of their health and respecting the framework that actually has enabled them to stay healthy. And, and why I'm, I preceded this with the word provocative is um, hopefully we'll start seeing in the UK, for example, uh, individuals starting to respect the NHS more so than they do. It was somewhat frightening to see a headline only two days or three days ago. Of course, everyone's tracking this new infectious disease development in Wuhan in, in China. Uh, but, you know, the, the greatest fear the NHS has is people are going to start rocking up in A&E uh, because they've got the sniffles and they think they may have contracted this new, this new disease out of Wuhan. Um, that's not a sensible way of using the NHS. And so hopefully, you know, if you look at other chronic diseases, uh, the fact that we understand them better and we're able to uh, manage them better because we have access to the data means that we can take greater ownership for our own healthcare. So it's a bit of a lofty goal, but I just wanted to sort of push the boundary even yep. further. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. You've mentioned China a couple of times um, in relation to growth, and you can't talk about technology in the healthcare sector without talking about China. True. What what trends do you see emerging from China, and where do you think their focus might be heading? So. Um, we track China very, very carefully um, because it is about 70 to 80% of all dollars invested in digital health in Asia Pacific are invested in, uh, in China. And it's a fairly broad range, but largely because in 2018, it was 80% of all dollars. And in 2019, it was 70% of all dollars invested in Asia Pacific. Now, we track it carefully because, as you can imagine, most of our clients, be they investors or be they corporations, usually the number one market for them to focus on, to understand, to navigate is, is China. So we do spend a lot of time uh, and, and uh, the, the, the data and the analytics we have on the Chinese market are second to none. We, uh, as a result, uh, are acutely aware of, of, of you know, which are some of the solutions that are attracting the most dollars, which are some of the solutions that are growing fastest, and why that is, uh, which is obviously the, some of the insights that our clients are looking for. You know, Asia Pacific, uh, unbeknown to most people, I think, um, closed uh, this year at five billion US dollars invested in digital health in Asia Pacific alone, uh, slightly down on previous year, which was six point eight billion. Give you context: last year, US closed at about eight billion, and Asia came in at six point eight. So, you know, it's the second largest digital health ecosystem. But 70% of that dollar value is actually China. So, so, so that's why it's so important. That's why we're looking at it. Um, why is it growing so fast? Well, I mean, leaving aside demographics that say this is the, one of the most populous countries, second or certainly first or second most populous country in the world. Um, and, and why is it that much bigger than India, which is roughly speaking the same size in terms of the population? Well, some of the things that are driven simply by government. You know, the, the government in April of 2018 released a set of guidelines that clearly stated that 
digital was going to be a fundamental part of the way in which they were going to transform digital healthcare. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with China, maybe a quick a snapshot of how healthcare is dealt with in China. Um, it is mostly done by the tertiary care side, so it's mostly handled by hospitals. Um, and there are different levels of hospitals in China, level one, level two, level three. And there's a special class called a level three plus. The average Chinese person, whenever they're needing healthcare, will go to the hospital, not to any other provider, like a clinic. It's simply because they don't trust any other provider. So they go to the hospital, but they don't really trust level ones and level twos either. So they all go to level three hospitals. The outcome of that is, is that in the morning, when you're not feeling too well and you need to go to the hospital, you rock up at the hospital and you usually find the queues already around the block two, three times and then the next block two, three times. And so you queue for three or four hours to get a token to get into the hospital to see a physician for about three minutes. That's roughly speaking what primary care healthcare looks like in China. Oh. Now, there's a whole economy in China now of... Um, do you know when the iPhone gets launched in the old days, they used to be able to pay someone to stand in the queue for you? The same thing's happening in hospitals in China. Wow. And people make a living out of basically being able to stand in the queue for you, and eventually you turn up and take their place. Um, so this is what's happening. So you can imagine the Chinese government is trying to move away from that. It's trying to change um, primary health care completely. And so it sees technology as a solution, and it is helping organizations such as uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and, and, and um, the other big technology players to drive that change. Um, and so as an outcome of that policy and those guidelines, the amount of investment available and those technology giants playing their role, we're starting to see some really interesting new platforms come through. And so I think most people are familiar with Ping An Good Doctor, uh, which is the big uh, better known let's say digital health platform in china and largely better known because it's got ping ang behind it uh, but also because it had uh, the largest ipo uh, for a digital health company in asia pac um last year 1.1 billion roughly and there's we doctor it's very southern so um and so it's growing fast um and it's been aided by a lot of funding um and also aided by a lot of pull from from consumers consumers are adopting fast and have the smartphones, for example, to be able to address and adopt. Um, so that's the exciting bit. And, and, you know, we are seeing, of course, some headwinds. Uh, and I think most people say, oh, yeah, well, what about the U.S.-China trade war or trade spat? Um, it's having its impact. Um, it's interesting because it's not new, that trade war. And, and as you can imagine, we, through the survey I was previously talking about, um, we talk to investors as well as to corporations to an understanding of how is this uncertainty, this you know, geopolitical uncertainty affecting them. Um, and until about the second half of this year, I think there was a lot of bravado around the fact, oh, no, it's not affecting us, we're cool. And the last six months, we started to see slightly different attitude from, from investors um, in so much that they are starting to sense the uncertainty that create, created by this, um, this, this US-China trade war. Um, and it's not what you're hearing about, this tariff war that's worrying them. It's, for example, new rules being drawn up in the US that any Chinese-owned um, technology, say, business that is publicly listed or wants to publicly list in the US needs to meet four specific criteria. I won't get into those here. But it's pretty safe to say that all of the Chinese digital health platforms that are listed in the US do not meet those four criteria. And so there are some issues coming up. 
And so you can see why investors are starting to feel a little uncertain about the exit of their investment. You know, where's this going? Uh, and so, of course, the Chinese government's running fast to try and make sure the Shanghai stock market it becomes that default. Uh, and if you, if you, you'll see that some, some of the um, planned IPOs in New York from Chinese tech players are now being switched back to Shanghai um, to, um, uh, to, to address some of these concerns. Um, and so we are seeing that, that challenge um, from that perspective. And we're also seeing a domestic economy in China slowing down a little bit. So, so it's having an impact on the amount of investment going into uh, these startups. Um, but the Chinese government is absolutely hell-bent on, on making this happen. Um, and so going forwards, as we see it, we're going to see a growing divergence between the U.S. market and China, and therefore China becoming more and more autonomous in the way it manages its technology development, its innovation, how it funds it and how it adopts it. Uh, and so you know, large players such as the Wee Doctors, the Ping Anga Doctors, and many others I can mention, um, but we don't have time, um, will continue to grow and continue to, um, to, to, to see success uh, because of that infrastructure helping them. Uh, and for a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs that we speak to, there actually is not a huge amount of appetite to go and do something outside China. They've got quite enough to do uh, in China. Fascinating. Thank you, Julian. Pleasure. So as if that doesn't keep you busy enough, I understand that you've also found time to co-author a book, You Disruptor. Mm. Perhaps you could tell us what the thrust of the book is and what you're seeking to explore in those pages. Yeah, um, we wrote a book back in 2014 called I Disruptive. Um, and um, we were a number of co-authors. And then we were trying to illustrate to the, the layman, the, the average person in the street, the fact that technology was starting to um, change our way of living. But it really was trying to illustrate how technology was doing that and how it was changing some of the, the business models th that we have um, in, uh, in the way we do things like booking a taxi, etc. All these things were fundamentally changing the shared economy, etc. Uh, at the time, we were fairly ahead of ourselves, we felt. Um, and, and so, of course, now we're talking five years on, in fact, six years on, uh, and most of what we talked about in the book is you know, come through to fruition and, and frankly, is old, old talk and, and most newspapers talk about it. Um, so we have over the last few years, certainly myself and Michael Baxter, my, my co-author on this second book, um, gradually become more and more concerned about the fact that as technology is changing, many things that we've come used to as individuals in the street, but we don't seem to be engaging with the fact that that change is taking place. And so uh, why are we concerned largely? Because yes, it's changing us in terms of our ecosystem, the way we live, you know, order food from your sofa on using your phone you know etc um, but it's also changing the environment we're sitting in and it's also changing us as human beings um, or has the potential of doing so and so we were trying or we are trying with the book to have a bit of a call to action to try and really get everyone to engage with the debate uh, the debate that is that you should not leave this massively important decisions that relate to um, the way in which technology is being used. And we've seen some examples in China with social credits, um, facial recognition, etc., uh, to the elite and the politicians to actually affect the law. Um, but in fact, we as individuals need to own that debate and need to shape that debate. Um, something 
similar, I guess if you don't try to use a parallel, it's something similar to what's happening in the climate change debate, which is, you know, Greta Thunberg is trying to get more of her generation engaged in that debate rather than just trying to influence a president or two to actually try and make that change. And as we've seen, it's not necessarily always successful. So, so we're trying to create that call to action. We're trying to create, first of all, therefore, that awareness and trying to help people get more informed about what's happening, particularly parents with children coming through who need to understand that the workforce they're going to enter eventually is going to look very different then than it is now. One of the headlines coming out of the World Economic Forum this week is the fact that in the US alone, 125 million people will need reskilling in the next five years. It's one third of the US population. It's probably over half of the workforce if you eliminate the children and the elderly from, from that number. Um, that's a pretty scary number because A, how do you reskill these people? And two, if you don't reskill them, what are the ramifications? Uh, both politically and, and stability in that, in, that, in that country. And so that's why we are kindly referring to it as, you know, that techopia moment. And, and more importantly, if you don't engage, will techopia become dystopia or utopia? Uh, and, and therefore, you know, take ownership of that debate because it's too late to scream about it down the road. So that's what the book is trying to do. And it's really looking at the not only... Um, you know how it could possibly be changing our environment for bad and for good but also how it could change us as individuals um, but it's not trying to spend any time on what are the technology pieces I think that's been done to death and will continue to be done to death it's really trying to take the individual to understand um, the potential ramifications of being idle about it uh, and therefore to be able to take that ownership moving forward the book is just more of a, a kickoff a platform what we're hoping is we can go beyond that and start creating that debate um, using the book as a starting point. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story. We wish you all the best with the book. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back for another episode next week. <laughs>